We have been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're in the third chapter. I'd encourage you to find your way there. Um, we'll be reading a, a longer text than we typically do, and you'll see why in just a moment. But Mark chapter 3, we'll begin at verse 7, and we'll read through verse 35. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. And if you have found your way there, would you join me as we stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Indomia, and from beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges which means the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, that's Jesus' family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in a parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan is, has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. 
Our God and our Father, we're so grateful to be gathered together in your name and in your presence, with our heads bowed before you, with your word open before our eyes. We've come to worship you, not to be entertained, uh, not to be uh, encouraged, but to learn and to grow. Father, so far this morning, we have spoken to you through our prayers, through our singing, but now it's that time where you speak to us through your word and through the Spirit. We ask, Father, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts ready to receive the word of God. We do pray for the one who preaches. His sins are many, as are all of ours. Pray that you would hide him in the shadow of the cross, that we might see Christ. This morning, as we look at this text, we pray again, as we've prayed so many times, Father, that we would not just be challenged by these words, but changed. Not just confronted by these words, but conformed to the image of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Again, I chose to read and to preach on a longer text than usual. And the reason is because together all of these verses paint a very important picture. As is often the case, and I've said this before, it's so easy for us as Bible readers and studiers to get caught up in all the details and make and create a theology out of details and miss entirely the big picture. We could spend a lot of time this morning talking about Jesus and his family. We could talk about the binding of Satan. We could talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we'll cover those. But importantly, we must see together the big picture, the main idea in all of this. And the big picture comes at the end of our text where everything comes into focus and it makes a very important point, very important point. In literature, we refer to this as a tableau, T-A-B-L-E-A-U, a tableau. Say that with me, a tableau. In verses 31 through 35, we find a tableau. A tableau is a still scene, a scene in which all the previous actions, people and so forth comes to a stop And in this still scene, only a dialogue takes place. Everything that has preceded it then comes into focus. Prior to the tableau and the verses we read, there is lots of action. We have great crowds coming to Jesus from Jerusalem, into Mia, beyond the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. We have Jesus calling the twelve, his disciples, and from those disciples appointing the twelve. We have the arrival of Jesus' family. We have hostile scribes coming from Jerusalem. There's lots of scenes, lots of people, lots of action. And we might ask ourselves, what does all that refer to? What is going on? What is the word of God saying to us? And at the end of all this, verse 31 through 35, a tableau, where all the action stops, nothing but dialogue, Look at it with me, because it gives us the right understanding. Verse 31, then his mother and brothers arrived and standing, keyword outside. They sent word to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around him, i.e. inside, and they said to him, Behold, your mothers and your brothers are, here it is again, outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and brothers? And looking About at those who were sitting around him, again inside, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for he who does the will of God, he is my 
brother and sister and mother. This tableau at the end of all these verses is really meant to point out what has been going on through all of the action and scenes and people, and that is there are, in fact, in the kingdom of God, insiders and outsiders. In this tableau, the house where Jesus is with some, he is on the inside, and they are on the inside with him. This house becomes a picture of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we have those who are outside of it and those who are inside of it. Some are in the kingdom of God, some are out of the kingdom of God, and everything that comes before this tableau really is meant to reveal this reality. You'll see it again in verse 25. Look at it. Important point. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. That is not only true for Satan's kingdom, but it is also true for God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not divided. The kingdom of God is not a mixture of insiders and outsiders. The kingdom of God is exclusively comprised of Insiders, those who follow, believe, trust Christ, obedient to Christ. You'll see it again in verse 27, where Jesus says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus saying, With my coming, with my coming into this evil world, I've come to plunder it. The strong man, who is Satan, the God of this world, is bound with my coming. His house, this fallen world, is being plundered by Jesus in the preceding verses. The plundering refers to some of those who Satan has blinded and deceived and enslaved, being set free, being set free with the coming of Christ. And with the coming of Christ and Satan being bound, outsiders are becoming insiders. Those outside the kingdom are being brought inside the kingdom of God. And in fact, there are, in these verses, a really profound and deep irony. Don't miss it. Not only do you have, in the preceding verses, outsiders becoming insiders, but you also have what would be assumed insiders being exposed as outsiders. For instance, we have scribes from Jerusalem. For most of the people in that time in the ancient Near Eastern world, these scribes from Jerusalem would be considered to be insiders. But they are, in fact, exposed to be outsiders. Or even Jesus' family at this point. Certainly, Jesus' family must be insiders. But no, at this point in history, they are outsiders. Conversely, you have the disciples, made up of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, nobodies. They're certainly outsiders. But no, in fact... They are insiders. Irony. Irony. The tableau speaks of a house, those who are in it and those who are outside of it. It's the kingdom of God. Inside this house are the followers of Jesus. Outside the house are those who are not followers. We have faith inside the house, unbelief outside the house, trust inside the house, rejection outside the house. And Jesus says in verse 35, what is an insider? An insider is, constitutes those who do the will of my Father. 
This point is really made crystal clear in Luke's version of the same account, where Luke writes this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. And then Jesus says this, He who is not with me is in fact what? Against me. And he who does not gather, scatters. With me, against me, gathers, scatters, insiders, outsiders. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. It is not a divided house. So this morning, I want to attempt to look at these verses with the idea of insiders and outsiders in mind. The first group we meet in this text is what is referred to as the crowd. The crowd. Look at verse 7 through 11 again. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. A great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Indomia, from beyond the Jordan, um, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him and And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready because, here it is, of the crowd. So they would not crowd him, for he had healed many. And the result was all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Here is the crowd. We've seen a lot of crowds, and we're only in the third chapter of Mark's Gospel. Lots of crowds. The idea of crowd is very interesting. The Greek New Testament word is aklas. It appears 37 times in Mark's gospel. Lots and lots and lots of crowds. Mega oslots, massive crowds. And the crowd, the crowd is made up of both insiders, or I should say people who will become insiders, and people who will remain outsiders. In the crowd, some will become Jesus' disciples and some will remain uncommitted For instance, you can take Mark 10, where Jesus, same gospel, where Jesus is surrounded by crowds, and we have little snapshots, for instance, from that crowd, someone comes that we refer to as the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus, encounters Jesus, and leaves, and still remains, after encountering Jesus, an outsider. A few verses later, you have another man, blind Bartimaeus, encounters Jesus, and becomes an insider. The crowd is a mixed bag. Some encounter Jesus, remain outsiders. Some encounter Jesus, become insiders. What we find in general throughout the Gospels is is that Jesus, both to insiders and outsiders, has compassion on the crowd. He has compassion on the crowd. And Jesus will take every instance he has to preach and teach to the crowd. Jesus will heal many within the crowd. Not all, but many. However, what we need to note is that Jesus will take occasions to challenge the crowd. This is also Mark's gospel. I'll get there when we get there. But just listen to what he says. And he summons the crowd and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life. Why would he say that? Because that is the typical motivation of the crowd. To save myself. He who wishes to save himself or save his life will lose it. 
But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit if a man gains the whole world? Why would he say that? The typical motivation of the crowd, gain the whole world. But it will in fact forfeit his soul. For what will man give exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. By and large, the crowd simply wants what Jesus can give them. Healing, food, d- deliverance. They want what Jesus can offer them, but they don't want Jesus himself. At times, Jesus will summons the crowd. At times, Jesus will leave the crowd. At times, Jesus will escape the crowd. At times, Jesus will send the crowd away. And there are times when the crowd will turn on Jesus, particularly in response to something that Jesus has to say. Today, sadly, heartbreakingly, pastors, in my mind's eye, are very cautious about what they have to say because they don't want to disrupt the crowd. In fact, often the crowd is the goal. The crowd is success, meaning, so forth and so on. Jesus wasn't like that. How many times have I heard someone say to me, Pastor, I drove by such and such a church. You should have seen all the cars. I drove by the circus. You should have seen all the cars. Jesus was never about accumulating a crowd. He understood that the crowd was really a perilous combination of insiders and outsiders. I know that. I know that well. And it seems to me if you focus on the philosophy of ministry between Jesus and the crowd as he taught and encouraged the insiders and at the same time was committed to expose and warn and plead with the outsiders. Jesus wasn't committed to maintaining the crowd. And really, by the end of his life, as he hung on a cross, guess what? The crowd wasn't there. Just wasn't there. Second group we meet, insiders and outsiders from the crowd, we move on to the 12. Look at verse 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and summons those who he himself, uh, he himself wanted, and they came to him. That's a, big, that's, a, that's a group of followers. And he appointed 12 of them so they would be with him and he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed, here it is, the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter or Rock. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he named Boanerges, which means sons, sons of thunder. These two guys would have been like Harley guys, biker guys. And Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, who also betrayed him. Up to this point in our study of Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus call only five men. In chapter one, he called the brothers Peter and Andrew. Later on, he called James and John, also brothers. And then in chapter two, we spent time looking at Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. But here Jesus had seven more men bringing the number to a grand total of 12. In fact, throughout Mark's gospel, Mark will refer to Jesus' disciples simply as the 12. The 12. 
As you look at these verses, there's something highly prophetic and symbolic taking place in them. Verse 13 through 15, look at it again. And he went up on the mountain and summons those whom he wanted to himself. And they came to him, verse 14, and he appointed 12 so they would be with him and could send him out to preach. Verse 15, and gave them authority to cast out demons. Verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, one key word in all three of those verses. The key word in verse 13 is the word mountain. The key word in verse 14 is the word 12. The key word in verse 15 is the word authority. Mountain, 12, authority. What about the mountain? Again, verse 13, he went up on a mountain, summons them, those who he wanted, and they came. Now this takes us all the way back in the Old Testament to the very beginning of Israel as a nation. Where God raises up Moses, leads Israel out of Egypt and captivity through the, through the wilderness to the mountain called Sinai. Upon arriving, God calls Moses up on top of the mountain where Moses spends extensive time with God. So much time with God on top of the mountain, alone with God on top of the mountain, that, that the nation at the bottom of the mountain thinks that Moses has disappeared. Thinks that Moses has gone, deserted them. But here, in this one verse, we have Jesus going up on top of the mountain. This is the new and better Moses. Jesus on top of the mountain. This is the new and better deliverer than Moses. The mediator, Jesus on the mountain, the new and better mediator of the new covenant on top of the mountain. And then in verse 14, he appoints appoints the twelve. And in Exodus 24... It says this, Then Moses came down and recounted to the people all the words and all the ordinances, that is, that God had spoken to him in all his time on top of the mountain. And the people answered with one voice, that all the words of the Lord which he has spoken, we will do it. And Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. And then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Listen, with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. New mediator of the new covenant with his own twelve. His own twelve. I love Luke's account of this same thing. Listen, Luke 6, 12 and following. It says, it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. Listen, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples to himself and chose twelve of them. Whom he named as apostles. An entire night of beseeching God, seeking God, committing to God in order to appoint the twelve. A new Israel, a new Moses, a new Exodus, a new covenant. The third word in verse 15 is authority. He gave them authority. What kind of authority? He gave, him a measure, gave them a measure of his own authority. How many times have we seen authority be the issue through Mark's gospel. He teaches as one who has authority. Who gives you the authority? The authority is an issue throughout Mark's gospel. And this is what we call specifically, when you look at verse 15 and he gives them authority, this is what we call in theology apostolic authority. This is unrivaled authority. So many people and so many movements mistake the uniqueness of apostolic authority. When they spoke and when they preached and when they taught, they were the mouthpiece of God himself. 
He gives them authority to preach and to teach with the authority of Jesus over demons. Although disease isn't mentioned, certainly we see that demonstrated. They have the authority of Jesus in measure. But their authority will even extend beyond even those sorts of things with an eschatological and end time characteristic. Listen to Matthew 19, 28. Jesus will say to them, Truly I say unto you, to the twelve, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. Twelve disciples who will sit as judges over the nation of Israel. Luke 22, 28 and following. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as the Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Apostolic authority. No one, no man, no person, no human being in all of human history has ever been given this kind of authority. Apostolic authority. God never gave the patriarchs this kind of authority. Abraham, this kind of authority. No one. But isn't it amazing? Because we're talking, remember, what's the title? Insiders and outsiders. Isn't it amazing that just like the crowd, even within the 12, there are insiders and outsiders? In verse 19 and Judas Iscariot, last one named, who betrayed him. Insiders and outsiders. The third group. First the crowd, then the twelve. Third group is the family. Verse 20. And he came home. That is from appointing the twelve. And the crowd, there they are again, gathered again to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, that's Jesus' family, heard this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. Who are his own people? Verse 31, his mother and his brothers. Look at verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived standing where? Outside. Or verse 32, behold, your mother and your brothers are where? Outside. And yes, Despite Roman Catholic theology, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Albeit half-brothers, half-sisters, right? Different father. In fact, in Matthew 13.55, if you're taking a note, Matthew 13.55, it tells us that Jesus had four brothers, four half-brothers, younger brothers, younger half-brothers from a different father. It tells us their names. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. That text also tells us that Jesus had at least two sisters. It refers to sisters in the plural, but they are unnamed. Could have been two, could have been four, we don't know. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. And it's interesting that in Mark's gospel, uniquely, so far in Mark's gospel, nothing has been mentioned of Jesus' earthly family. Why? Because in Mark's gospel, there's no birth account. There's no account of Mary and Joseph or the angels, shepherds, fleeing to Egypt from Herod, all that sort of stuff. What Mark's gospel does tell us is that Jesus came from Nazareth. And if you put that together, here's Jesus' family. 
traveling the 20 miles from the city of Nazareth, his hometown, to where he is on the Sea of Galilee in the city or town of Capernaum. They travel 20 miles. That's a big feat for a family. And why so? Verse 20 through 21, when his own people, his family heard this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying he's lost his senses. In other words, here comes the family, and essentially they're saying, listen, we've come. We've come to save Jesus from himself. Whatever they have heard, they deduct something is wrong with Jesus. He's lost something. The phrase, he has lost his mind, you'll see it in verse uh, 21, is actually one single Greek word. It's ekistome, and it's most often translated in the New Testament to be amazed or to be astonished, but sometimes it's translated uh, to be besides oneself, uh, to be bewitched or something like that, to kind of be out of the norm. Ekistome literally means to be sort of displaced. Jesus has lost his way. He's displaced. The idea is not quite as harsh as some preachers and commentators have suggested. They're not accusing Jesus of being crazy, but displaced. Something's wrong. We're here to save him from himself. Something's not cooking right in him. And here again, you get this. Even Jesus' family at this point are outsiders. John 7, 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Or Jesus would say in Matthew thirteen fifty seven, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. household. Let me just say this. We all know that this won't be the last time that a family will be divided over Jesus. Amen? This won't be the last time. This may be the first time, but not the last time. In my mind's eye, can you imagine being one of Jesus' younger siblings and living with him as the example? He was perfect. Why can't you be like your older brother Jesus? He's perfect. He's sinless. Can you imagine the wisdom of Jesus? He had all understanding. I mean, it's sort of like James would say, I grew up with my older brother, and it seemed to me like he had all the attributes of God. That's my brother. But you know what? I think, truly, one of the most single amazing verses in all of Scripture is this. Listen to it. Written by Jesus' brother James in his epistle, James chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to this, where James writes this. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James came to realize that his brother, his half-brother, older brother, was divine. He was the Lord. He was the Christ, the Kurios. And by the way, just to make the record complete, after the resurrection and ascension, guess what? The outsiders become insiders. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and following, it says, When they had entered the city, they went up into they went up into the upper room, outsiders going inside. 
And they were staying there. That is Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, uh, Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and, and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Insiders. Outsiders at this point in Mark's gospel will become insiders. And by the way, again, a point of application. Surely this must be for all of us a word of encouragement because all of us have outsiders in our family. And it is the power of Christ and the Spirit that turns outsiders into insiders. Keep praying, keep telling. Outsiders do become insiders. And by the way, the insiders that surrounded Jesus were some of the most formidable sinners alive at the day. Christ is a far greater Savior than the worst of us are sinners. Fourth group. From the crowd to the twelve to the family, the fourth group we meet are the scribes. Oh boy. Verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself, he is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven of the sons of man, and whoever blasphemes, they, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Listen, when we came to the family of Jesus, they came, outsiders albeit, they came out of concern. When we come to this text, we have the scribes. They're not coming out of concern. They're coming with one purpose, that is to attack. To attack. And you'll notice, verse 22, that they are scribes from Jerusalem. These are the scribes of the scribes. These are Jerusalem scribes, not family members who have traveled 20 miles, but scribes from Jerusalem who have traveled the 80 miles traveled 80 miles from Jerusalem to Capernaum to put Jesus in his place. The religious leaders in Jerusalem obviously have heard of what Jesus has said and what Jesus is doing. And these scribes, scribes of the scribes, have been sent by the religious leaders on a mission to put Jesus in his place. And they have heard about Jesus' teaching and exorcism. And there is no indication that when these scribes from Jerusalem arrive in Capernaum that they even witness an exorcism or even that they are on some sort of fact-finding mission. No. When they come, they come immediately with one thing, that is to accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub, of being devil, Satan, possessed. And this is exactly what these scribes have concluded. Whatever they've heard about Jesus, Jesus is possessed by Satan. Not even demonically possessed, but Beelzebub. And by the way, only Mark's gospel tells us of this accusation. 
that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. Who in the world's Beelzebub? Beelzebub was a Philistine god. He was particularly associated uh, with the worship of this god in the city of Ekron. Uh, it is a compound word. Baal was the uh, Canaanite fertility god. Uh, Zebul was Hebrew for flies. You've heard Beelzebub referred to as the Lord of the Flies. And the, the, the Hebrews and the Jews saw Beelzebub simply as a name, another name for Satan, the prince of demons. I've heard some scholars refer to Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, as when sacrifices were offered to, to, to him, to Satan. Uh, of course, they would sit out in the open and it would be covered with flies. and They saw it as Satan consuming the sacrifice that had been made to him. Bottom line is they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Now in these verses that we just read, this charge by these scribes against Jesus bring about two of the most highly debated ideas that you'll ever encounter. One is the idea of the binding of Satan, and two is the idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, sometimes referred to as the unforgivable sin. So with the remainder of my time, I want to deal with those two highly debated ideas, the binding of Satan, and secondly, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. First, the binding of Satan. Look at verse 23 and follow. And he called them to himself, and that's after knowing that they've accused him of being possessed by Satan. He called these scribes to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself it is not, it, 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 and is divided, he cannot stand. Uh, but it's finished. He is finished. So Jesus gives this parable. Uh, he's talking about a kingdom. He's talking about Satan being the king of this kingdom. And the logical conclusion he's making is uh, if a king is destroying his own forces or whatever, this is self-suicide. Essentially, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of Satan is not in the midst of a civil war. That's ridiculous. That's not what's taking place. But what is taking place, Jesus said, verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder the house. And so, listen, with each exorcism, Jesus is binding Satan and plundering his house. With each salvation, Jesus is binding Satan and plundering Satan's house. With each one. And how is that so? It's possible because Jesus is binding Satan. Now, for you that are aware where this goes, in Revelation chapter 20, we have these verses. It says this. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key to the abyss with a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent old, who is the devil and Satan, listen, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him in the abyss, that is, he threw him down, shut and sealed it over him. Why? Here it is, Revelation 20, verse 3. So that, listen carefully, he would not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for a short time. Some, many, see these verses and the binding of Satan as a future event. 
Some see the thousand years as literal. As literal. I don't see it as future, and I don't see it as literal. It's apocalyptic literature and demands to be interpreted apocalyptically. I believe that Revelation 20, the binding of Satan, came with the arrival of Jesus. I believe that the thousand years is an apocalyptic idea for a long time. And I believe that with the coming of Christ, there came the binding of Satan. And by the way, if you're interested and you care, this idea is not only in Revelation 20, but it's also in Revelation 12. In Revelation 20, Satan is bound. Why? So that he can't deceive the nations any longer. In Revelation 12, 9 and 10, Satan is not bound but cast down. Why? Same reason. So that he can't deceive the nations any longer. Binding and being cast down are seen as the same thing for the same reason so that he cannot blind the nations any longer. Prior to the coming of Christ, Satan blinded the nations of the world to the gospel. And then we come to the promises of God. For instance, this is Isaiah 9. Listen to Isaiah 9. Verse 2. The people, talking about Gentiles, who walked in darkness will see a great what? Light. And those who lived in a dark land, the light will shine on them. How? This is still Isaiah 9. Still Isaiah 9. Just four verses later. How? Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Here's a prophecy. The darkness will give way to light. How? A son will be born. A son will be born. Listen, Matthew 12, 27 through 29. Jesus says, if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by who do your sons cast them out? But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, here's the conclusion, then, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 16, verse 15 and follow. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. Listen, and... The gates of hell will not stand against it. I'm going to build my church, and I'm telling you, the gates of hell will not stand against it. Now listen, you've got to understand something. I have never been attacked by a gate. You missed my point. Gates are not offensive. Gates are defensive. And the gates of hell shall not Stand against it. Luke 10, verse 17. And the 70 returned to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even demons are subject to us in your name. And he has said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority. Remember this? To tread upon serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Over all the power of the enemy. And nothing will injure you. I have given you authority for the first time in the history of the world. Power to prevail against the enemy, over all the powers of this evil world. Because of my power, Jesus says to the the 70, he says, you too can bind the strong man and plunder his house. Is it a future binding? 
John 12, 31, now, not future, now, judgment has come upon this world, now, not future, the ruler of this world is, will be cast out. How about the Great Commission? Just think about the Great Commission. Matthew 21, 18 and following, Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Stop there. Why would Jesus talk about authority on, in heaven and on earth? Is he not referring to authority over the seen and unseen world? Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. Nations that had previously, for decades, centuries, millennia, set in darkness. Go, make disciples of all nations. Doesn't this assume that Satan no longer comprehensively deceives the nation, but rather, through the gospel, through the spirit, we can bind the strong man and plunder his house? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to preserve all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Doesn't the entire Great Commission assume that the strong man can be bound and his household can be plundered? Go into all the world. I'm with you and you have my authority. Just like the 70, just like the 12. Mark, if you would, with me. Mark chapter 3 and look with me at Revelation 12. Listen to the context of this. It's unmistakable that the casting down or the binding of Satan is not future. It came with Christ. Verse 9, Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. Listen, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then... I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, what's the next word? Now. Now. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night. Satan thrown down. Now salvation, now power, now the kingdom, now the authority of Christ has come in order that Satan would no longer deceive the whole world. You can make your way back to Mark 9. Let me pound this nail a little deeper as you're going back there. Mark 3, rather. In Acts 14, Paul preaching to the Gentile pagans in Lystra, he said, preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and sea and all in them. He says, in the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own way. God permitted Satan to deceive the nations, to be led astray, to walk in darkness. But that has ended with the coming of Christ in the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. In Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, all people, everywhere, that they should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has anointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Again, both Revelation 12, Revelation 20, Satan is bound, Satan is cast down. One reason, so he no longer deceives the nations. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24? That this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, to the testimony of all nations, and then the end will come. 
Or Jesus said in John 8, 12, For I am the light of the, what? World. World. Romans eleven twenty five: a partial hardening has happened on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, of the nations, comes in. In fact, Thayer's Greek lexicon, this isn't just Jacob's, this is Thayer's Greek lexicon, says that the Greek word deo, which is translated bound, is used of animals to prevent them from going astray. The idea is that the enemy has been leashed, he has been tethered, he has been restrained, no longer capable of deceiving the nations of the world. I said there's two highly debated ideas. I hope you got the one, the binding of Satan. The second one, the final one, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. Verse 28 through 30, and I'll be done. Truly I say unto you, all sins shall be given of the sons, forgiven of the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, whatever blas- whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What is this? What is this? Throughout my ministry, I have had tender-hearted Christians come to me extraordinarily concerned, wondering if somehow they have committed the unforgivable sin. Uh, Sproul says this, what Jesus is defining here is a specific type of blasphemy. That is, to call Jesus the devil as the worst and most gross form of blasphemy we can think of. The Gospel of Luke scholar Novo Geldenize says this sin is a conscious, willful, intentional blasphemy of the clearly recognized revelation of God's grace in Christ through the Holy Spirit, a revelation which nevertheless, out of hate and hostility, was ascribed to the devil. Can you and I commit the unforgivable sin? Can we commit this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to suggest to you, and maybe you'll take a sigh of relief, that the answer is no. No. You know why? Because Jesus isn't here. It took Christ in all of his perfections and persona to demonstrate the grace and magnificence of God in such a way that to accuse what he is, what he did, and what he was saying as being of Satan cannot be replicated today. You can accuse me of being Satan possessed. You know why? Because I'm not Jesus. I have flaws. I have shortcomings. My interpretation and all that isn't perfect. There's nothing perfect about me. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about divine perfection. And to look at divine perfection and declare it to be satanic is blasphemy in its utmost. The perfections of Christ do not exist today. Much less would any of us, even in our worst sinful condition, ever look at those sorts of perfections and say, these are satanic and demonic. The uniqueness of this particular sin lies in that relationship between Jesus on one hand, perfection, and these scribes sort of on the other end of evil. And their accusation isn't one of ignorance or lack of evidence or even unbelief. Their blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was a willful, wide-eyed slandering of the work of God in which they attributed to Satan what was undeniably that of God, perfected only in the person of Christ. Every other blasphemy, maybe you've said a few in your lifetime, it's not unforgivable. Jesus says so. 
The miracles of Jesus were his heavenly credentials. These hard-hearted evil men came and declared that they were the credentials of hell. Blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, is not just unbelief. It is not typical rejection, doubt that's so often found in our world. This is the most serious of blasphemies because it involved the presence of the person of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit perfectly demonstrated in the person of Christ, turning up the unseen world of Satan and saying that this is all evil, satanic. In their accusation, they're saying Christ is Satan, Christ's authority is Satan's authority, the Holy Spirit is Satan, Holy Spirit's power is satanic power. This can't be replicated today. This can't be replicated today. In fact, I love, if I can find the text, what does he say? Because they have, here it is, look at verse 30. Here it is. I'll pick it up verse 20. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal word, uh, eternal sin. Listen, verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus has an unclean spirit. This is unreplicable. Thank God. Amen. Let's pray together if we could. Father, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for sending our Savior, God in flesh. Uh, Help us to take seriously the idea of insiders and outsiders. Outsiders, outsiders who appear in the crowd. Outsiders who appear even among the twelve. Outsiders, even in his family. It's so easy for us to look at the bold and clearly identifiable outsiders, those who curse God and curse Christ, hate God, hate Christ, hate the gospel, hate Christians. But it's it's more subvert than that. Uh, Satan's clever. Uh, Satan wants to dilute, corrupt, prostitute the purity of the kingdom of God by sneaking in wolves claiming to be sheep. Father, thank you again that Satan has been bound. The truth of the matter is that none of us, not one of us, would be here if he had not been bound. As Gentiles, most of us, we would be deceived as were the nations prior to Christ. No gospel, no God of Israel, no nothing. All over the world, worshiping whatever they worshiped. And we can go back and look at human history, at the craziness and paganness and idolatry that characterized the entire world prior to the coming of Christ. But Jesus came, bound him, and plundered his house. And the truth of the matter is that each one of us here today who know you savingly are part of that plunder. You have delivered us as Paul writes in Colossians, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of his beloved son. From one kingdom where we were outsiders to another kingdom where by faith in Christ we became insiders. Father, you've charged us to go into the world to make outsiders insiders with the gospel. Just teach us and help us to understand the big picture of our lives that are truly vapors short-lived experiences. And yet there is something 
majestic, transcendent, eternal that we have, by your grace, become part of. Again, just teach us this morning. Change our hearts. Challenge us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. My brothers and sisters, receive God's blessing upon you, your family, your marriage, everything. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And may the Lord give you his peace. Amen.